Welcome to the Hell is for Hyphenates podcast. I am writer, critic, and former Prime Minister, Lee Zachariah. With me, of course, is... Hi, everybody. I'm film student uh, slash filmmaker, hyphen filmmaker, hyphen Twitterer, hyphen um, stabbed in the back ex-Prime Minister, Paul Nelson. Paul Anthony Nelson, to those of you that follow me on uh, Twitter. And we have as our special guest today... I'm Thomas Cordwell, uh, slash... No, that's my name. <laughs> Thomas Cordwell, film critic slash broadcaster slash educational textbook author slash very much a failed actor slash mining industry lurking in the background, hopefully not pulling the strings as much as I'm terrified that they are. <laughs> this got very political very quickly. <laughs> it's been that kind of week. It has, but it's been a crazy month. It has. June films. The films of June. Uh, my three... I just Have there s- been many good ones? Honestly, my three favourite films thus far of 2010 came out this month. Really? They are, of course, Furry Vengeance, Grown Ups, and Marmaduke. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think anyone who knows Did me... Did Furry will... Vengeance come out here? Yeah. <laughs> it's coming near a screen for yeah, a day. That, that completely missed my yeah. radar as well. Yeah. 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 Poor old Brendan Fraser doesn't have much of a foothold yeah. anymore. Yes, I, don't I, think, I don't think June was a good month overall, though. Oh, really? Uh, I think there were a handful of great films, but I, I think there was a lot of very mediocre stuff that came out this month. There was, yes. Hmm. That is undeniable. As with most months these days, but I'm not going to get on that bandwagon. So what came uh, out this month, Lee? Well, we had, uh, we had Animal Kingdom. Now, uh, this has been uh, dividing people. There are the people who think it's absolutely brilliant and the people who think it's very, very good. So it's been quite a harsh division. Where do we <laughs> all stand on that? It's a chasm <laughs> tearing Australia apart at the heart. It's a weird debate to have, isn't it? How much you love something. Yeah. And, you know, for people who really... See, I think we'll get onto this later when we talk about I Am Love. But, you know, I liked that film, but I didn't love it. And I feel really weird arguing for why I didn't love it. Yeah. Mm. Trying to pull out aspects that didn't work for me when, in fact, it is a film I did really like. Mm. I feel exactly the same about Animal Kingdom. You'll love that with Animal Kingdom, yeah. yeah well, I'm on, the love, I'm on the love side of that. Mm. I, I've seen it twice. There's just with my time availability there's very few films i will actually go and see in the cinema twice mm. and animal kingdom was one of them i don't know there's just something i i possibly offended the filmmaker at the q a by asking if it was how much was it influenced by michael mann it felt like an aussie michael mann film to me which is fine which is great mm-hmm. i don't know there were just asking i don't know if i was so keyed up to see it um because the trailer was the most impressive Australian trailer I've seen in years. Yeah, even though it uses an air supply song. Yeah, but it uses it brilliantly. <laughs> yeah. And I am, I gotta say, I am in love with an incongruously used, ironically utilised song. It's fantastic when a film has the power to do that to a song. I mean, I find that now a terrifying song. I haven't experienced that since Stuck in the Middle with You. Yeah, you know, yeah. It was used yeah. so effectively in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. It's, I, I've always been terrified by air supply, but now I feel I have a good <laughs> reason for it. It's curious you mentioned the whole Michael Mann thing, because mm. I, I didn't even think of that. One of the reasons I really dug it is I'm not a big fan of Australian crime dramas. Mm-hmm. I find many of them are hugely derivative of Tarantino and Guy Ritchie. Mm. Yep. And it, you know, it's like a Tarantino film in a Western suburb. Yeah, That doesn't do it for me. And even the Coen brothers. I mean, The Square was... I'm one of these people who really thought The Square was quite average. Mm-hmm. I'm very much on my own with that. I mm-hmm. didn't dig it at all. And that, for me, felt like a Coen brothers film in the western suburbs. Yeah. What I enjoyed about um, Animal Kingdom, and I had never thought of the Michael Mann thing, I kind of get where you're coming from with that, is that it felt so Australian mm. to me. It felt so just original and um, refreshing. Mm. It's almost certainly my favourite film of 2010 so far. 
Almost certainly. Almost certainly. Well, okay, it is certainly my favourite thus far. Uh, but yes, with six months to go, I'm I'm hoping that something can top it because that would be extraordinary. But yeah, yeah, um, I really really flipped for it, and I think it's a it's it's a very original voice and a very assured voice, and for a first time filmmaker, yeah, first time feature filmmaker, mm. yeah, yeah, true, yeah, true. Yeah, it's, 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 it's in my top five, absolutely. Yep. I'm still you know, every... I found it had a saggy second act. I feel mm. like the, I feel like a lot of the tension begins to drain out of it a little bit. It runs around in circles a little bit in the second act, and then fires up again for the third. Ben Mendelsohn, for me, is very good. Wasn't that scary to me. <laughs> what I dug about Ben Mendelsohn's Pope character in Animal Kingdom is you're first introduced to him through dialogue. Uh, a voiceover, in fact. You're told Pope is the one we were all terrified of, we are all afraid of. Yeah. And then you see him, and he, he looks pathetic. Mm. He sneaks into the kitchen. And, and I, I, I actually thought I'd misheard the film. I thought, is this a mistake? <laughs> what? But then as the film developed, I did get this sort of simmering tension right behind his eyeballs. Yeah. This sense of a man who was capable of extraordinary violence and damage. And as the film progressed, he never exploded. That's why I dug. He never sort of went wild. It was just this thing that was there. I think I would like to see it again. I get a bit, I get a bit concerned that perhaps I've, it was loaded with my expectations. Mm-hmm. Because there's things like the, the Air Supply song, I wanted that to be... I, for some reason, it's like okay, they've got they've got this terrible song they're using in a wonderful way, and linking it in with fear, it's totally going to be a Jackie Weaver moment. Jackie Weaver's, you know, you've done some bad things, sweetie, and that song, and it's going to be something awesome. It's like, oh, it's a, it's actually used for a precursor to this. Mm. Mm. I don't know if I like that as much as the idea I had in my head, <laughs> and because I think the one thing we can all agree on with Animal Kingdom is Jackie Weaver is fucking yes. amazing. <laughs> a dynamite, isn't she? Yeah, but it, it, it undercut expectations because you're right. I remember I saw the Air Supply song. I thought, uh, is this going to be a try-hard David Lynch moment or a try-hard Quentin Tarantino or Scorsese moment? Mm. I mean, they're, they're all directors who like to use catchy pop songs to underscore violence. Mm. And I didn't do that. It was just this one scene wow. where they were sitting there exchanging, you know, some very disturbing glances. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, um, I did say before that my three favourite films did come out in June. Uh, one of the others was, as you mentioned before, I Am Love. Mm. Now, um, what, what were your thoughts on that? I was really loving it to a point... Now, let's just get some of the adjectives out of the way. <laughs> Opulent, lush, yes. lavish. I mean, it's a stunning, gorgeous, gorgeous mm. film to look at. And it was curious. I, I don't know how people are going to respond to me saying this, but I got thinking about, again, I keep bringing up Tarantino for some reason. He loves the mine exploitation. He's he's, 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 don't get him started on Tarantino. Okay, he's, he's a very fine filmmaker. <laughs> he loves the mine B-grade cinema and exploitation cinema to reference and you know, pay homage to. With I Am Love, I felt the director, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, but I felt he was doing that to the heavyweight of art house cinema. You had your Eisenstein shots in there, there were some Hitchcock shots, mm. but especially Douglas Sirk and Lucino Visconti. And I mean, this film owes a massive debt to The Leopard. Yes. So that was all there, and I just found that, that these, grand, these grand visuals, which I was soaking up and loving, weren't suitably tied to the emotional story. I was disappointed that especially the son and the daughter character weren't developed further. Mm. I started to lose interest when you know the affair happens, and then when the big melodramatic plot point happens, mm. which I know you've got to do that. It's kind of operatic. You've got to have a big tragic moment, but it lost me. I like okay. I like the serene moment. I like the serene feel of it more than when it went into full blown melodrama. 
But um, you know, the weird thing is, if, if it wasn't for people giving this 5 out of 5, I would just say, yeah, fantastic film. But I'm not putting it in my top 5 like you are. Mm. And I'd like to hear what it is that struck you about it. Well, it was, it was really on a, on a sensory level. It was this wonderful assault of, of images I'm not used to seeing. I'm not, uh, just in, in terms of camera placement. And this is something I always get uh, from um, the great unwashed when they criticize me. You know, oh, you're a critic. You look at it. You care about the camera angles. I'm like, I don't care about the camera angles. But of course, then the great unwashed. Let's use the 21st century term. Oh, I'm sorry. Unwashed talkbackers. Talkbackers. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, Douchebags. Douchebags. Let's turn around the internet. Let that seems to be the favorite insult. Yeah. Exactly. But um, mm. when, when he when he puts the camera, the way he moves the camera and puts it up top just looking down at her and puts it in unusual places it's there's something that hits me on a not on an intellectual level but on a gut level i'd like, like to hit this guy on a gut level <laughs> so it just made me thought of any hole <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear, yeah i yeah. hear what you're saying uh mm. and and while i did uh note a lot of those references i was uh like the, the hitchcock shot um it felt very like alexander sokharov's stuff uh uh, it, it felt like Miyazaki's films uh, feel very... Uh, the astonishing thing about them, given their animation, is they feel very tactile. You feel the world, and mm. that's to do with the sound and the time he takes. And there was a very deliberate tactileness, mm -hmm. I want to say, to the movie. And it's... I sort of had... I, I could only go in on that sensory level, so I wasn't thinking about character development or plot. I was just letting it sort of wash over me. And on that, that level, it just affected me very deeply. Hmm. Listening to how you describe that uh, sort of made me process my response a bit more. And I think what it was for me is I didn't want the intrusion of story. <laughs> I actually liked it when yeah. it was more just a century experience. Sure. Um, I, I mean, the opening 20 minutes, it quite deliberately doesn't focus on any particular character. Mm. It's a bit like some of John Sayles's films, in fact, where it, um, Limbo is what I'm thinking of, where it quite cleverly, about halfway through the film, just says, this is the character we focus on, the rest of them actually were just a red herring. <laughs> and I actually quite enjoyed the fact that you just got bombarded with all this information and this, you just got into the sense of this family and you felt like you were in there with them. And you're right, those camera angles are stunning. And I certainly don't love a film because it has fancy cinematography. I love sure. a film because it has fancy cinematography that hits me, you know, touches my soul, if you like. Exactly, mm -hmm. yeah. And this film did that to a point for me. Okay. How, yeah. is, our, um, how is our Prime Minister in it? Uh, Tilda, or Julia, is, uh, she is that amazing. Is uncanny, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. No, but she, she is amazing. I've always been a fan of hers, and I think this is one of her best performances. There's a, there's a warmth that you don't get from her other, other mm. roles that right. is in there, and it's, uh, it's sort of, she's the perfect person for it, because a big part of the character is, is this passion contained within her, and that's a great example of an actor's baggage being, you know, uh, adding great benefit to the film because she does sort of you don't expect that she has that passion in her and then when it explodes it has that added impact i'm going to stop saying impact so much <laughs> yeah no you're right and and the music of the film i think very more very much uh is in, in is in tune with what she's experiencing i mean that, that final mm. shot is also stunning where the music just goes yep you know right up to 11 mm. and it really does capture that incredible emotional language that she's going through and uh, i agree with lee tilda swinton is is astonishing in this film and it's probably the best thing she's done since Orlando mm -hmm. where she played a character who doesn't age which is quite appropriate because I don't think Tilda Swinton has aged it would be nice if she started just so the rest of us don't feel so bad yeah <laughs> yeah well speaking of 
actors not aging and uh, uh, very spurious segues. Uh, my third third favorite film, Toy Story three. <laughs> Do you like aging. that? Do you like that? That, was, that was very good, Lee. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Toy Story three is remarkable. I thought I, it's another one I've already seen twice. <laughs> right. It hasn't been, even been out for a week, and I've seen it twice. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. The re- yeah, the response to this film seems to be off the chart. Well, they remain so true to the core concept of the film, which was developed further in 2, mm. which is this idea that toys have a finite life with their owners. Mm. Because in 2, Woody had the opportunity to go and live in a collection, a toy museum, and he said, no, no, I'm going to stick with, stick with my pals. Mm and see it out, even though I know it won't be forever, because a toy's purpose is to be there for the owner. In Toy Story 3, we now have that point where, you know, Andy's 17 and moving on and trying to work out whether it's donate, attic, might take one toy for nostalgia with me, Mm. or the bin. And they remain true to that that idea. And, I mean, the final (laughs) half an hour of this film is utterly heart-wrenching and devastating. It's up all it over again. It's like bring tissues. It is, it is so gorgeous, though. Mm. It is... I mean, one, they actually make you feel the toys are legitimately in a situation they're not going to get out of. Mm. Like, I really was thinking, oh, my God, they're going to end it in this really traumatic, upsetting way. Yeah. And it was beautiful. And it's resolved by something that isn't a random coincidence. It's something that's set up earlier in the film. There's nothing that's wasted in this film. No, no. Everything has a point. There's no throwaway pop references. Everything has a purpose. And it all comes, you know, full circle towards the end. And then you have this extraordinarily heartfelt ending, which is just the perfect way to resolve this theme of what happens to a toy when the owner gets too old. I love that they're based on such simple but so... Incredibly emotional concepts. I mean, because the very concept of a toy is something that for kids is very present and very real and part of their everyday lives and something they love about everyday life. For the rest of us, for adults, it's instantly linked into nostalgia, Mm. into things we used to love, into a simpler time that we wish. So it's an immediately emotive thing to be dealing with. Mm. I think the most amazing thing about it is that it had a new story to tell. Like Mm. the the basic setup is the The same as film too. And yet... it doesn't feel repetitive at all. Mm. It's the mm. themes are sort of the same, but it's told a completely new story. Mm. But they are thing. different phases within Andy's life. Like there are different times in your life when you start to move away from mm. toys. Some do earlier than others. Mm. Everybody over, you know, over eighteen, I suppose, can I, will identify with this aspect of moving on with life mm. and you know putting away childish things, as the mm. famous quote goes. And I, I'm not a, not a parent, and but I'd be really curious to hear from parents who've had the experience of their child growing up and leaving home as well, because there is a moment in the film, that, just a very brief moment that touches on that as well. And yeah. I suspect everyone's going to just get so much out of this. Yeah, mm. I, I, I can't wait. And um, I'm not seeing it in 3D, goddammit. <laughs> the 3D is very good. The 3D, if it's we, used well. This is the thing. The 3D was is... this one made in 3D? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Well, it's, yeah. It's not it's a con- post-conversion? No, no, no. No. The 3D is good, but I'll say it's... Um, and what I like about it is it's unintrusive. Mm-hmm. My complaint with 3D is when it's treated like novelty. You mm-hmm. know, things jutting out at you from the screen. Yeah. And, 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 and this I call film... it the paddle ball effect. Yeah. It's from um, House, of Wax. House of Wax. Good call. <laughs> I, watched, I watched Kiss Me Kate, the, the musical, again the other day. I've seen that dozens of times, and it was only this time that I noticed things kept coming towards the camera a lot. And I looked it up, and sure enough, it was shot in 3D. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't notice until people keep swinging out towards you. <laughs> You're like, hey, on why, why do you keep doing this? <laughs> so uh, we've barely touched on all the releases, but I think we've touched on all the important ones. Mm. Uh, are there are there any others 
We wanted to I've got to say, I know you guys, I don't know if you've seen it, Lee, but I know Thomas wasn't crazy about it. But I've, I've got to say, I had a surprisingly fun time with the A-team. I, I had a cold and missed the screening, so I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I felt that it, it was surprise. It was, look, it's over budgeted. The action scenes are way too long. But the team have a genuine chemistry. And I think that it's, it's a surprisingly self aware film. I think it's very funny. The flying tank scream is seen as a, is a scream. Well, I, I did actually. I liked it to a point, and then I got sick of it all, and I just mm. thought, oh, whatever, just wind it up and finish. I'm a bit bored now. But I've got to say, that flying tank scene was just so <laughs> audacious and just so outrageous. I didn't want to stand up and give it, you know, yeah. a standing ovation, just like, well done, well played, gentlemen. Mm -hmm. That is absurd, <laughs> they even acknowledge and it you've, in the film, you've pulled it off. You've got that great, they're, they're sitting in the control room going, what's he shooting at? And Jessica Beale's staring at her computer, deadpan, saying... He's flying the tank. <laughs> and, you know, every time they, they show show the ranger tattoo, you hear a little... In the background. Like, it's so self-aware. Like, I yeah. think this film's got a great sense of humour. And, and, yeah, and I think Neeson, Cooper, and, and Copley in particular, mm -hmm. and a little bit of... Like, um, the other guy's a UFC fighter. He's not really an actor. He's okay, I guess. Um, he, he doesn't speak very well. No. That That did annoy me. Mm -hmm. I had trouble understanding him. Um, but the other three, I thought, bounced off each other really well. And Murdoch was the right shade of crazy. Get Him to the Greek is another one I saw. Yeah. Which, again, not terribly funny. I don't know. I'm, I'm not always on board with the Apatow stuff. I, I think the Apatow stuff are great beer and pizza movies for the most part. Well, I really mm. like the Apatow stuff as a rule. Mm. But this one uh, just left me a bit, huh? Yeah. And it's had some really strong reviews. I didn't hate it. No. But a similar response to the A-Team. I just sort of thought, well, whatever. Mm. And ultimately, I kind of felt I haven't lost this huge, significant part of my life from sitting there and watching it, but I probably could have done without. I thought it was very fast-moving, and, like, it, it, it had a momentum, and it had a... But nothing really happened, and it was filled... It was cliches end-to-end. -end. See, that's curious. You said it's fast-moving. I found it really slow. Really? Really? I just wish they had an editor to tighten it all up. Wow. I found a lot of scenes dragged. Yeah. I think if you're editing a comedy, the idea is to find the joke yeah. and focus on that. And there weren't any jokes in the film. I if you actually go through, it's not. It's just people acting like they're in a comedy. It's like, you know, Puff Daddy's at home with his kids. He's yelling, my favourite show is The Biggest Loser. And the kids are going, yeah, and everyone's laughing. And you're thinking, what have I missed? Is, is, it some, is this funny? I don't mm. understand. There are no... There's nothing really jokey in there. It's just people acting wacky. That's a trend that we've had for a while now mm. in cinema where you just put funny people with big personalities in a film and then just saying stuff yeah. in a wacky way or saying random things. Mm. And I say this as a hilarious. Russell Brand fan, by the way. I really like him. Mm -hmm. I think he's, uh, he's deceptively intelligent. And uh, it was his charm that got me through the film. But, um, yeah, there was very little else in there I liked. I've, I've got I, to say it's Russell Brand that did it for me in this. I seen very little of his comedy mm. I don't know I know very little about him I like his character was so sad and Jonah Hill's as well and that's what sucked me into the film like the only thing that sucked me into the film I didn't think it was terribly funny as a comedy but it surprised mm. me because in major comedies the characters always have kind of a cosmetic sadness and their shit's just put together but and, and it's I guess you know they're getting their wonderful lives together and I guess in this case too they've both got great careers and whatnot but I don't know, there just seemed to be such a genuine sadness to the way that Russell Brand and Jonah Hill played the characters mm, that yeah. I found I couldn't really turn myself away. Yes. Yeah, and that sadness didn't come from the script, it came from them. Mm. I did love the scene in the uh, in the big night, or well, the big party, where it just all descends into chaos, violence and hell. That mm. was fun, and that kind of anarchic 
See again, I felt humour. It was I did tragic. Enjoy. It wasn't. I didn't think it was that funny, but I thought again, it was like surprisingly tragic. Yeah, like the whole thing was just like it's just a bunch of incredibly sad people in so, this film. See, for me, that scene was all about the fact that Cole Meany was in it. <laughs> and they called <laughs> Meany. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now there was uh, there was a film that came out earlier this year that uh, I really really enjoyed. It was called Harry Brown. It was a revenge film with Michael Caine, and I thought it was very, very well made. I then read a review by one Thomas Caldwell, in which he explained why it was a morally repugnant, unforgivable film, and I couldn't disagree with a single point that was made in that review, and yet I still loved it. And so, you know, using Harry Brown to jump off, can you enjoy a film that you morally disagree with. I don't think I said morally repugnant, but yeah, I was leaning towards that. Might have been reprehensible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I called it reactionary tabloid trash. I, it's a brilliant question, and I think for myself, increasingly no. Mm -hmm. But I think it's got a lot to do with degrees. My issue with Harry Brown was also in the filmmaking style, which wasn't cartoonish and silly, but it went for a kind of gritty realism. Mm. It went to present its representation of these kids who it's okay apparently to kill as the real deal. That, I think, is my main issue. I really enjoy Independence Day because, to me, it's a ridiculous cartoon film. Deeply conservative film, the way it represents the military and the government. But I wouldn't say it's a reactionary film. Harry Brown, I think... I was trying to think of why I responded to it because I agreed with what you said. I thought, well, why hasn't that changed my mind on the film? And I think a lot of it is that I, I believe the world they presented to me. I believe that these kids could exist. I believe that the cops could be cowardly or unable to act because of bureaucracy or whatever. I don't necessarily believe that that world is ours. And, and I do disagree with fascism and, and vigilantism. But they sold me that a guy like Harry Brown could be pushed to do this and you see where he's coming from. It might not be the right thing to do, but I did empathise with him, and I could totally understand why he was taking these kids out. I mean, I could see why he would. Mm. That's the thing. It, and there's a difference between you having that vicarious thrill with the character, which, I mean, I quite enjoy vengeance films, mm. because there is that wonderful vicarious film of, oh, wouldn't it be awesome if you just kid that guy's ass? But it's the film itself endorsed his actions. That, you know, that there's that repeated shot of the underpass and that's, you know, quite symbolic about him not being able to go under there. Yeah. And you know, the end of the film has him smiling and happily walking down there. It's like, oh, he's done good. Also, the film... I mean, I found Harry Brown in particular I did have a lot of issues with. Uh, the, the film never presented any um, evidence that the police weren't doing anything. We kept on hearing that the police were no good. But we never actually saw the police failing in their duties. In fact, we had the Emily Mortimer character who seemed to be quite good at what... She, at her job. But she if, seemed, she seemed to be If the most brittle cop ever. Every scene, mm. she's almost in tears. You notice that? Yeah, yeah. And then Mel, like, every... every she, she, she looked very threatened. Like, yeah, yeah, it's like, she's meant to be this gun cop, and it's like, she's almost crumpling down in tears. How the fuck did she get through the academy? Well, it's empathy. I mean, again, I mean, she seemed to be sympathetic to him as well. Mm. Well, it seemed like she was battling against the cop she was working with. She was the one who was trying... To, I think she was representative of 
somebody within the police force with their hands tied, sort of unable to get anything done. That's a fair call. I mean, funnily enough, the, 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 yeah, the mainstream police force represented by her boss was also kind of a right-wing lunatic yeah. who went for a zero-tolerance approach, which is another one. You know, right-wingers love zero-tolerance. I love individual vigilantism. Yes. And the zero-tolerance approach is very much shown to be destructive in this film as well, which didn't make me think this is a complex film. It made me think, Boy, the filmmakers are confused about what they're trying to say. Yeah, mm. I see. This brings me to my show. I fit somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. I love a bit of fascism. No, um, <laughs> I, I, I just think these kind of films can be incredibly well done, and can make you feel incredibly sympathetic towards the protagonist. I just thought this wasn't a very good film. Mm. I thought the villains were completely one-dimensional. There were no like you compare this to something like The Horseman or Eden Lake which are two films that kick this film's ass and yeah. have that same kind of like Eden like does address the so-called hoodies. Mm. Like, you know, the, the rampaging group of, you know, young kids in hoodies just doing what they like and fucking shit up. But it introduces a social context. Mm. We see the parents and we see where this is, where they come from. But then at the same time, the families are close-knit and they look after their own and this has sort of come out. And, but they're also kind of abusive and there's a three dimensional kind of thing going on whereas in this it's like the film says to me if you live in a housing estate you're a lunatic unless you're 70 like everyone under 70 that lives in a housing estate in this film is a crazy person didn't like that um the one dimensional villains didn't like i mean what was with um i wish i knew the actor's name he seems to be the bad the rat-faced bad guy he, he played the, i know who you're talking he, about he, he played was, ian curtis in 24-hour party people Yes. Are you talking about the gun dealer? Who... Yep, yep, yep. And he was in uh, Red Riding. He was um, yes. a cop, uh, Bob Craven. He uses a gun as a crack pipe. And... I, I was yeah, really yeah. talking That guy was like, zombie. wow, is yeah. this like cartoon just walked yeah. into the movie? And was, he was I was really fun. hoping you wouldn't bring up that scene because I can't defend that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one scene. I can't... It was like, that was the one scene in the film I had fun with because this guy was just an utter cliche. And I was like, oh, this is just ridiculous now. See, if the whole film was on that level, in fact, mm, yeah. I actually probably would have enjoyed it more. Yeah. It would have been cartoonish and silly and not had this kind of faux social realism and thing it going opened in the ugliest possible way mm. like the video footage of the kids on the motorbike shooting the single mother and oh shooting the mother in the head and it's like oh come on i don't think even the herald sun would stoop to those levels mm. it just seemed yes. like the ugliest possible level and there was no reason to shoot her at all and i felt wow that's the worst kind of emotive mm. um and then it just sort of went from there. And it's that sort of very post-7 kind of... And I'm, I think 7's a masterpiece. Mm. But that post-7 ultra, ultra grittiness, like there is no good here. There is only death and unhappiness and bleakness. And we're all just going to crawl into early graves and we're going to like it because it's such preferable to the world we live in now. That was the view of the world this film had. And I just Well, that's my view, so... Yeah, <laughs> you're on board. Yeah, yeah I, just, I just thought it was a terrible movie. And, and why did he have to be... This, this kind of echoes something my partner said, but it's like, why did he have to be an ex-bloody Marine or whatever? Like, well, I that's th- what I liked about The Horseman. Yeah. It was just an ordinary bloke who wanted to find his daughter and he mm. fucked up a lot of... Yep. But Harry Brown needs to be an ex-Marine because... With all the hurdles the film has to jump over to get him to that point, uh, you've already taken care of how is he 70 years old and can take out all these young, strong mm. 20-year-old hoodies. So you mm. sort of it's sort of just a bit of a shorthand to yeah. say, we've taken care of that. It wasn't very well introduced either, no. though. I mean, there was that very awkward scene where he's talking with his friend who said, oh, that's right, you're an ex-Marine. Like, Why, yes, I am. And <laughs> Why don't you talk about that But I keep that repressed, you know, because of my wife. And hey, if she was to die, it might come to the surface again. We've covered everything good. <laughs> yeah. See you next week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah, I just I just thought it was badly written, and I thought it was directed in a very one note fashion, and I thought it reflected badly on a certain social lower class mm. of Britain. And I mean, you look there. There's probably a lot of that going on over there, but you've got to show both sides, or at least a three-dimensional side within that, if you're going to take that stand. One thing that the whole Harry Brown thing got me thinking about is whether there are any films... Because, I, I mean, I'm not saying that I loved it. Harry Brown's one of the best films I've ever seen, but I did enjoy it. But are there any films I actually loved that have a central message I disagree with? Dark Knight, it's a, he's a conservative fascist it's vigilante. It's the war on terror. It's, it's presenting a case for surveillance. It's that whole thing about... And subverting the law. Yeah. And it's yeah, yeah. and vigilantism and subverting yeah. the law. But also that whole speech, the, the thing that really nails it for me, and when people try to tell me that The Dark Knight isn't, has nothing to do with the war on terror, it's like, just play that speech. It's like, I'm, like you know, he's mm. not the hero we necessarily want, but he's the hero we need. Yes. And it's very much an indication of the way the Bush government saw themselves. Mm. And I think that's undeniable. I don't know how you can listen to that speech and not make that connection. Yeah. The difference is The Dark Knight is set in this hyper-real world. Mm. Like, it's Gotham City is sort of this composite of every kind of film noir, German expressionist image of the city as mm. a dark, disturbing, New York. transgressive, mm. dangerous place. Mm. So it's everything's exaggerated over and over mm. the top. And, you know, it is a dude dressed as a bat. And you do have the Lucius Fox character who dissents and basically resigns if... Because he can't work under, he, like he can't yeah. surveil you. He goes, "I'll do this for you," but after this, I'm gone. Yes, and Batman is a flawed villain. Mm. Uh, <laughs> hero. It's a, it's a funny slip. He's <laughs> a very flawed hero mm. as well. I mean, Batman's always been presented as complicated, and even in, I, I, for the first time, I've actually started reading some of the Batman comics. And even in those comics, there's this constant battle he has between he wants to do clean up the city, but stay morally on the upper ground. Mm. And he doesn't always succeed in doing that, and he's even aware of that fact. Mm. So, it's aware of its own moral dubiousness. Yes. yes. So yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love. I love Dark Knight. I disagree with what Batman does, but that's what makes it so interesting. Mm. I was looking at some others. Wizard of Oz. Don't dream. Don't leave. Don't, don't have leave any home. ambition. Don't leave home. Stay where you are and be happy with it. It's 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 a film designed for to continue <laughs> the class system, essentially, and keep people where they are. <laughs> Oh, wow. I never thought of the Wizard Neither of Oz. Neither did I until you and I, Lee, and yeah. some of our friends watched it in a double a few years ago. Yeah. And one of our friends started commenting on things like that. And it's and this film mm. that I'd seen 20 or 30 times in my life was suddenly, oh, wow. Oh, it really is xenophobic and really is kind of about not leaving home and stay, and not having ambition and everything you have is in your own backyard. So don't go anywhere or else you'll run into trouble. Exactly. Like, wow, I never saw this. <laughs> I always thought it was just an interesting little fairy tale. Yeah. But it does represent normality in black and white, while the fantasy is this glorious colour where people sing and wonderful thing, things happen. So I think stylistically, maybe the film works against that idea. Maybe, but the, the end message is, oh, thank God I'm back home. I'm back in black and white. I will never leave again. Maybe it's an argument against colour film. <laughs> yeah. That, that <laughs> was in the, the 30s. That was their 3D. <laughs> that was their idea. That was their Yeah, and as the wizard is, is you know, he's just... Uh, the whole thing is an illusion, isn't it? He's been... It's not a real fantasy world. It's sort of this guy has been conning them. <laughs> I haven't seen it for years. I'm going to watch it again. Yeah, He's with very intrigued with this, with this argument. Okay. The Breakfast Club's another one with, you know, mm. the, the, the interesting um, uh, sort of gothic alternative girl gets the makeover at the end. <laughs> I always have a problem with that scene. I'm certainly not the only one, which is... Yeah. Oh, don't give her the makeover! Absolutely. She's fine. She should be happy with who she is. Mm. Another film I know that 
I remember I enjoyed it when I was 20 or something, but mainly because I liked the cast in it. But I know it's a film you found reprehensible was The Time to Kill. Yeah, I yes. find that pretty reprehensible. I've not seen it since I was yeah. 2021. Oh, 21? Was that like 96? Yeah. I haven't that, seen it since it came out either, so I'm mm, going off a very vague memory here. That and Sleepers came out about the same time. Mm. They're both very much the law will fail you. The law, yeah, will let you down. So mm. go and get a posse together and. I did like Sleepers a lot. Kill though, because violently. Sleepers felt like mm. that felt like something could happen in that milieu, though. Like in, in that city of New York with mobsters, and, and two of mm. them did become mobsters, like gangsters essentially. Um, I like Sleepers a lot but again I haven't seen that since it came out well, as well. but it felt very like to me that felt like more like a product of its environment than a product of this is what you should do it felt like this is what characters in this environment do mm. and it felt very real to me so in that case it didn't necessarily condone it but kind of felt like this is the only way these people saw out of it and yeah and, and again the film does work to kind of absolve them of that Trying to think of wherever we arrived at a final point. Have we got a... Can we just... I think you can. I think you can. I think if the film is well-written enough and three-dimensional enough and treats its characters like human beings and looks to find some kind of a societal... Not tell us everything, but, but at least looks like it's trying to find a societal root in all of this. Mm. Then I think, yeah, absolutely. If it's well-reasoned, you... And, and, you know, and then, and then on the other side of the scale, if you make something utterly silly and cartoonish, like Independence Day... Um, or like a Inglorious Bastards, you know, like mm. like just a full. Well, kick full ass. Up. I know people who are horrifically offended with Kick Ass mm. and thought that was a really, you know, morally reprehensible film. And I just thought, well, actually, yeah, it was pretty immoral. Oh <laughs> wow, what a ride! Yeah, <laughs> that didn't bother me in the slightest. Mm. And I sort of got off on the fact it was so transgressive. It's weird. You get, you, yeah. It, to me, you've got to keep it in one of the extremes. You either really make it, make it real but you're making it real you don't sell out the villains and which is that's what Harry Brown does yeah it tries to go for this real but it's but again it's too gritty as well it's too movie gritty and I think more importantly if you're going to make a serious film it's got to be complex mm. I think the simplicity is what often lets these films yeah. down I think if you try to colour one side to obviously in one way uh, that complexity is is lost and that's mm. when I get my you know back up that's the thing you lose mm. the complexity turn it to a cartoon Mm. It's one way or the other. Having having like blurring the lines. Having Batman as you don't necessarily agree with how he's how he's doing it, present him as a flawed hero, mm. presenting Nicolas Cage and Kickass as what he's doing is not necessarily the right thing. In fact, everyone points out that it's the wrong thing. Mm. So it's having that uh, objectivism within the film mm. probably helps as well. Yeah, although I've got a problem with Kickass. I know. Yeah, I mean, that's a thing thing saying. Saying. <laughs> that gets us onto a whole other yeah, track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Dirty Harry is a very good example of a character yeah. who um, he, he definitely is inclined to be that way, but I don't think the film necessarily endorses him. It follows what he does. Mm. And there's a few scenes where stylistically I think it draws attention to the fact it's a bit full on, mm. the game he's playing. So yeah, there's a difference between endorsing what the character does and simply showing the character. Now, the filmmaker... Uh, that you have chosen to discuss with us. Who is it, Mr. Caldwell? Well, I didn't choose exclusively. <laughs> I thought this was a discussion that we thought Tim Burton mm. would be the ideal person to discuss since the Tim Burton exhibition has yes. just open, opened at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. So everyone's got Burton on the mind mm -hmm. right now. 
Well, I mean, it's I'll, a good good time to look back at him. Yeah. And look back Australian centre of the moving image in Melbourne, Australia. One of the keepers of the flame of cinema in this country and should be... Um, a southern hemisphere. They're not going to send you free stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, Damn it. Well, I don't mind saying by saying I'm actually a very big Tim Burton fan, despite not having loved his stuff over the last 10 years nearly as much as I have in the 90s. But I, I adore... He's got a very singular vision, which I enjoy. And having heard him speak now twice last week at various events, I think he's a very sincere, genuine person. He's, got this very, he's still got this very childlike view of the world. And he often talks about growing up non-verbal, where he didn't speak a lot, uh, in suburban you know, America, a place called Burbank, where he was very quickly identified as a weirdo and an outsider. And so he adopted that persona because he, was, you know, he had different interests. He mm. wasn't a jock. He liked watching monster films. And what he loved about monster films was he found the creatures and the monsters themselves were the soulful ones who he identified with. And he disliked the mob mm. who was set to persecute the monster for being different. And, and that, that idea of an outsider always struggling to fit in with society and being unfairly chastised is a big part of his, film, uh, in, of his films in that very childlike way. And Edward Scissorhands is the epitome of this, mm. and easily his most personal film, where you've got this strangely ambivalent view of suburbia. You know, you've got the Diane Weiss character who's actually very sweet and accepting, but a lot of the other neighbours aren't so pleased when Edward shows up. He's at first treated like a novelty, uh, he's even fetishised, mm. but then they turn, they turn on him, you know, because he's different, where the thing is, Edward is the one with, with the soul and, and the beauty. That is the perfect marriage of uh, director to material. Mm. I think that's, yeah, absolutely one of his best films. It's my um, favourite film of his. It's one of my favourite films, full stop. Yeah. Mm. It's funny you say fetishised in it too, because judging by what he's wearing, yes. he's wearing fetish <laughs> yeah. gear. Um, I think Ed Wood very much fits into that. Yes, Paradigm too. I think Ed Wood's his masterpiece. I think Ed Wood's his hands again is a film I've not seen in a very long time. I think I need to see again. Um, always felt a little too simplistic for me. Whereas I like, I I tend to think Ed Wood's more real, well rounded. Mm. Um, I think Ed Wood's an amazing film, and again, it ties it back to filmmaking as well for Tim. Um, I watched Ed Wood again the other night for the umpteenth time, but then watched it with the commentary straight after. And he was saying that he sympathised even with Ed, the scene at Star Red's looking through all the reviews, and then he sees like he started thinking of the reviews he got for Pee Wee's Big Adventure and for um, Beetlejuice. They were, were critically slammed. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and he began to um, and that him and Ed grew up on the same stuff. Mm -hmm. They grew up on monster movies. They grew up on comic books. They grew up on things and. I can't help thinking that that's equally as personal as Edward Scissorhands, and for me, a better film. Well, I think so, and obviously Tim Burton saw a lot of stuff in common with, you know, Ed Wood, um, all of which you just mentioned. But also, Tim Burton had this, you know, Vincent Price as his idol, who we got to do the voice mm. in his first short film, and then he appeared in um, Edward Scissorhands. Mm. Edward had a similar relationship with Bela Lugosi. Yes. Yes. And um, Nice parallel. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a lot of parallels, yeah. and I think Burton probably even sees a lot of himself in Ed Wood and could see that he may have had the same fate if he did get terrible reviews for his first two films, but they did massive box office. And in a way, Tim Burton is just extraordinarily lucky because I think he has always pursued his own vision. Mm. It just happens to be box office gold, and he's very fortunate. He's probably a little bit more talented 
yeah, than Edward as yeah. well. But I've, I've a little, seen, little I've more attention that, to detail. A little bit. But I, I've seen some of those Edward films, and there's a remarkable spirit and energy behind them, which I kind of dig. Yeah. And, and a personal know. vision too, like his 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 loves and his you know and and his passions are all over those yeah. films mm. in every frame. And, you know, you, you could slightly tweak them and release them as surrealist masterpieces <laughs> in some ways because they are just a little bit random and, and weird and ironic. Glenn and Glenda in particular. What, <laughs> do you, what do you think of Batman, like his Batman films? Well, I love them. Mm. I think the Burton Batmans aren't the best. I really enjoy Christopher Nolan's ones. Mm. Um, we won't even bother talking about Joel Schumacher. There's not too much no. argument there. No one should ever bother talking um, about Let's not talk about the nipple era. No, oh, wow. The Christopher Nolan ones are sensational, but they're quite different films from the from Batman and Batman Returns. I think Batman Returns is one of is yeah, it's my favourite superhero film, wow. comic book character film. I think it's absolutely magnificent. Mm. And what I liked about them is he blended that kind of gothic darkness with a kind of comic book, slightly over the top sensibility. And a really dark sense of humour. And, and in the second film, he got even a bit more psychological and the idea about what happens when you wear the mask and how actually wearing a mask and concealing your identity liberates you. Mm. And just the whole duality with you know Michelle Pfeiffer and Catwoman and Michael Keaton and Batman. Sorry, I'm saying the actor names, not the character names. Oh, yeah. we know who you mean. Bruce Wayne, yeah. Yeah. Carl, yeah. Yeah, loved it. I, I really, really dig the Tim Burton Batman films. Mm. I have to say, this is something, um, looking at Burton's career when we brought this subject up, mm. is that, I mean, I've been ragging on the guy for the last 10 years now because I've, I've kind of been feeling like he's making the films his fan base think he should make rather mm. than the mm. films that he really well, wants Well, I, I, I did actually feel that for a long time until I heard him speak yeah. last week. And I he would have found me. that really interesting. I'm yeah. really, really yeah. angry that I'm missing everything. I've missed the... Desert Island talk and the well, that's online now. Oh, is it? Yeah, Acme bless them are putting all all awesome. of it up on their website. I've got to catch that. But but the thing I thought about that yeah, that suddenly occurred to me was he is actually a deceptively seminal filmmaker for me because Batman started everything. Mm. For me, I was a kid that liked to go to the movies like every other kid. You now I saw Ghostbusters and Gremlins and Back to the Future and the movies and I saw Beetlejuice at the movies. But you know, who knows who directed them and they were fun and you know, I had that kind of sci, you know, I guess superhero sci-fi kind of thing going and I like that. But when I saw the Batman trailer, something snapped in my head because mm. Batman is my all-time favorite popular culture character, mm-hmm. and for the first time he was being treat- treated seriously. And I saw that trailer and it was like nothing I'd ever seen. It was everything I ever wanted to see from that character. And then there were so many... Batman was such a phenomenon in 89. And the marketing materials were looking at every facet of the film production process. And for the first time, I started to look behind the curtain. Yep. Mm. And that was basically the day I saw that Batman trailer was the day I stopped being a film, man, film fan, started becoming a film buff. Mm-hmm. And wanting to be a filmmaker. Okay. So Batman was my moment. And it's not Star Wars like everyone else, I'm sorry to say. It's, it's very interesting you say that because I found that uh, certainly when I was growing up, uh, Burton was very much a gateway filmmaker. That was uh, when I was a teenager in the, in the 90s. He was, that was when everyone was starting to realise what directors did. I mean, I'd grown up on you know Hitchcock, a lot of Hitchcock, so I knew what a director was, but everyone started to talk about... I would see old friends from primary school who'd gone off to another high school and got into filmmaking and the first thing they want to talk about was Burton 
and he was he's, he really is that gateway between the mainstream and the art house certainly in that period uh, so I give him a lot of credit for that because mm. he was definitely doing something a bit unusual he's an accessible auteur yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a very distinctive one. And like a popular it's, it's, it's very easy to talk about, you know, the Tim Burton vision. Mm. It is. It it's is. very present. Um, but having, having said that, I I remember even at the time, the film, for me, wasn't quite as good as the trailer. But I did like the film a lot. I, I, I think now that it does lumber a bit, but there's so much about it that's singular and memorable and like nothing that had come before. Or or recalled the best of what had come before, like Metropolis mm. and Blade Runner and all that sort of thing. And there is, yeah, there, 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 there's so much about it that's, that's, that is so imprinted in my mind that I can't not have some love for it. Batman Returns, I think, is a much better film. Mm. I think that Batman Returns isn't a great Batman film, but is a brilliant Tim Burton film. It's, it's interesting. So you say Tim, that. I think yeah. he kind of leaves. They gave him total control for that film, and they kind of regret. And Warner's kind of regretted it in the end because he kind of left DC Comics behind, and it became a Tim Burton movie. Mm. I mean, you look at the Penguin and you look at Catwoman; they look like he sketches. You know, the sketches that are on display at Acme right now. You know, it's like it's such a product of Burton's mind, mm. and it's so personal to him. Like he totally altered that second movie. And that's and and so I think, as you say, the the, the thing, the liberation of wearing the mask, and I think it's full of Burton-esque themes. It's a brilliant Tim Burton movie. Doesn't have a lot to do with DC Comics and Batman. I I do agree with that, and I'll say in addition, as somebody who grew up not on the comics of Batman, but on the Adam West TV series, <laughs> it works brilliantly <laughs> as an adaptation of that show. Because if you approach it from the comics, there's a lot that's sort of not as good, or they got wrong, but. The way that they, you know, all I knew was Adam West and suddenly it was cool and I recognised the that Joker and I recognised the Penguin and, and the way that they'd taken them almost from the TV series. And the amount of things are in those movies I look at and think that was just a cool version of what was in that TV show. And on that level, I think it's at its most successful. Wow. I could see that with the Joker. Yeah. I could definitely see that with Nicholson's Joker. I, not as much with the Penguin. The Penguin to me is such a Burton-esque creation. He took a fairly boring kind of character in mm. the comics. And he does have the, wah, 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 that the guy in the TV show had, that yeah. Burgess Meredith had. But it's uh, everything else, the eating of fish, the dark rings around the eyes, the, <laughs> the lust, the crazy, you know. It's <laughs> such a Burton character. It is, yes. yes. And, it, and it's amazing. And it, for the first time in my life, the Penguin was interesting. Yes. Mm. <laughs> and, I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman is, is an amazing... Well, we all kind of young men of a certain like age when that came out. And, yes, it was very... <laughs> A formative experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got. I got to say, there is. A, there is a film I have a lot of almost guilty love for, uh, and that is Mars Attacks. <laughs> I don't think you need to have guilty love. No, I think Mars no. Attacks is fairly openly loved. I um, validation. Oh, I got to say, I kind of. Yeah, it's I, more guilty for me. Yeah, I, I mean, I, Mars Attacks is so much fun, and I, I, I love the fact that it was. It, it was like an Edward film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And it's beautiful that it came, you know, I think right after. Yeah, straight after Edward. It is a one-joke film, yeah. but it tells that joke so well. Yes. That's fine. Yeah. That's no the worries. perfect visual style for that kind of movie, doesn't yeah. it? Mm. Like all the CGI work and all the set design and the way the costuming, like it's such, it's such a perfect view of that world. Um, and it, half of Hollywood, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the first of those big massive cameo films. Mm. Uh, well, not one of the first, but well, at, at, at the time, there weren't many of those kind of things happening. Yeah. And 
I, it's one of those films I watch every now and then. I never enjoy it as much as I think I'm going to, mm, mm. because I think it does lack complexity. Yeah, and but it does. So it fun. is a bit long too. Yep. For the, yeah, it's so fun, and I always spot little things before I'd never notice that just crack me up. Mm. There's one scene where Jack Nicholson is the president of the United States on the phone, desperately trying to get the French president not to let the aliens in, whatever, and he hears them all getting zapped. And he just turns the camera and gives this little shrug of, oh, what are you going to do? And I don't know, that's, that for me, that's as funny as it gets. <laughs> it is great. Now, I've, I've got to say, I think Sleepy Hollow, his next film, I really like Sleepy Hollow, but I think it's there that the wheels sort of came off the wagon a bit. Yeah. See, for me, I'm, I adore Sleepy Hollow unreservedly. That's my guilty love of the, of the, I think it's absolutely perfect in terms of what it does. I think it's it's a great hammer homage, mm. and again, yeah. Phil Burton obviously loved growing yeah. up, and he's just he's he's perfectly recreated that in in the sort of you know you know uh, modern sort of um, context. I guess he even got all the hammer horror guys in there. I mean, yeah. all those all those English actors who are very distinguished actors who also did all these horror films. They're all in there, mm. and Johnny Depp's wonderful, and it looks amazing. And but it's, that's but yes. it's such a but, but again, I yeah. See, I know, I know what you're saying, but yeah. I don't think it's I, I look at that and I look at Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and their poles apart. I look at that and I look at Planet of the Apes and their poles apart. But but I think Sleepy Hollow is the is the progenitor of all that because it's when we went in it was like this is the perfect Tim Burton movie. It's extremely gothic. It's got Johnny Depp and Christina Ricci and all of these people in everything about it looked like the ultimate Tim Burton movie. And it was, but I came out feeling so, and you'll have to pardon the pun, hollow. Because there was, it was just a superficial experience. And that was fine. That, that was fine. I didn't mind that. But there was something missing underneath. And ever since then, I've noticed that Tim Burton films are superficial experiences. Hmm. Whereas someone who, who also has a, a, not really a gothic, but certainly a very quirky left field sensibility like Terry Gilliam. Hmm. Has layers and layers and layers. And when I look at the two side by side, which is quite inevitable given some of the movies they've made, mm. Burton just, I don't know, I just get, get nothing out but of it. But I think it. Burton's always given less than Gilliam. I think from day one, Burton's films have never had the complexity that Gilliam's have had. Well, yes and no. I, I, I think you're spot on, Lee, about Sleepy Hollow. I think that was when Burton started doing Burton. It, um, I remember seeing it, it was, I had a similar response to when I first saw Wild at Heart. David Lynch is actually my first mm. big love of cinema. Mm. And I felt that was a bit Lynch doing Lynch. And Sleepy, I enjoyed both films, but yeah, I had that, that feeling. But I, I do think Edward, Batman Returns and Edward Scissorhands are emotionally and psychologically complex films. Mm. But certainly after Sleepy Hollow, it dropped off for me. Yeah. Well, and and I agree, Terry Gilliam, whose films are chaotic messes, I still adore. Yeah. Because there is so much imagination and idea, and still original originality. Absolutely, I I just think Sleepy Hollow is something Burton connected with. I can't see how he could connect with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Sweeney Todd, Planet of the like. They just don't seem. They seem more mechanical. They seem more like films his fan base think he should do. Yeah. Whereas to me, Sleepy Hollow seems still like something that's come out of Burton's heart. I think Bill. I think Burton is mellow. I think the death of his parents was a big deal. He made Big Fish just after his parents died, mm. and that's a film very much about a strained relationship between a child and his father. Mm. And you know, then he, he you know he got married and he had children. And I think he. I think he's just mellowed. Mm. I. I um. I don't think. 
and I really got this impression hearing him speak last week. He he was really sincere, mm. quite fragile, quite humble, quite shy. Quite I really, funny too, I heard. And yeah, very funny. Yeah. Um, lovely, but you didn't want to, you know, you didn't want to cough in case you blew him over and he shattered in a thousand pieces. <laughs> um, but I got the impression he makes the film at the time it's right for him, and maybe he's just mellowed now. Mm. See, so, I love Sweeney Todd. Yeah, so so did I. But I, I have a, I have an emo- my uncle played him on stage, played Todd on stage. So I had that emotional connection to the material already. Mm-hmm. And so all I needed Burn to do was point the camera and make it look interesting, which is what he did. Mm-hmm. So I was very satisfied. <laughs> with and that put film. Alan Rickman and Johnny Depp. Well, exactly. Yeah. All these amazing actors in it. Big Fish is is one that really really bothered me at the time. And and speaking about how he came to that with the death of his parents, I feel a little bad ragging on it, but um. But Big Fish is one that should have had all this deep stuff going on, and to me it was just yeah. surface level. It, it felt like a film that was a lot less magical than it thought it was. Mm. And mm. I found it wasn't an ode to storytelling as much as an ode to bullshit artists. <laughs> I think I liked it more than you guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was extraordinarily moved by the end of it. Wow. It did feel too long, and there were bits where it lost me, but I um, remember being very, very moved by the end. And... I think it's probably, of all of Burton's films, it's the one that feels the most left of centre, bizarrely enough, like un-Burton-esque. It feels like a Terry Gilliam film. And actually, I would have loved it if Terry Gilliam did it instead. Yeah. Same, yeah. And it's probably, it's probably better than, with the exception of possibly Sweeney Todd, it's probably the best film of that last 10 years. Well, I agree. I mean, Sweeney Todd and Big Fish are the, are the only films in the past 10 years I'd recommend people checking yeah. out, to be honest. Yeah. How slight is Corpse Bride? Yeah, Corpse Bride so feels like a short film. It's a real nothing film. Yeah. I didn't dislike it, but I left me with nothing. Same here. Yeah. Was the working title really Screw You, Henry Selleck? Because that's the <laughs> sense I got from it, how everyone goes, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. It's got like, what, a written and directed by Henry Selleck? <laughs> Come on, give the guy a break. And then he goes and makes his own. just to. Well, it was just directed by was Selleck, it? yeah. Okay. Like, Burton created the characters in the world and produced it, and then he brought in a writer to write it. We're talking it. about Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, yes. he brought in Caroline Thompson, I think, to mm. write it. And okay. then he, done, yeah, and then he hired Henry Selleck to direct. I think that might have been the X factor between those films, why Nightmare works so well yeah. and Corpse Ride was alright. But then, where does James and the Giant Peach really fit in? Which uh, is directed by Selleck, produced by Burton, and is a giant turd. That's a good point. Yes, I didn't think <laughs> I never saw it. Nightmare Before Christmas, I think, is his most overrated. I mean, yeah. I've only ever seen it the once, and I like it, yeah. but it didn't do that much for me. Mm. It's a lot um, of fun. And, I mean, it's been great as a t-shirt, a character on a t-shirt for the emo kids, but um, <laughs> I think that's partly why there's a backlash against Burton, you know, because he has been so much appropriated by goth and emo culture. Yeah. I suspect that's turned a lot of other people off. Mm. But not just that, the, uh, he's also been appropriated by that part of mainstream culture that thinks it's quirky but is not. Mm. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know, the people who go, oh, I loved Alice in Wonderland, it was so weird, Johnny Depp had a funny hat on or something. And Which is a shame because it's so genuine from Burton. Mm. Like, Burton means it. I think I think he did. I yeah. I wasn't a huge fan of Alice in Wonderland, possibly because of expectations I brought to it. Mm. If they called it Alice in Wonderland 2 or yeah. 3, Return I suppose, because there is also yeah. one through the looking glass, yeah, yeah, you know, Wonder Harder. Well, Return to Wonderland, two. it's like Return to Oz. Yeah. From I, the outside looking in, that's what it sounded like. I may have yeah. enjoyed it more, but um, I Alice in Wonderland is a book I loved as a kid and I really enjoy the Disney film, mm. the old school animation, which Aldous Huxley is an uncredited writer on, can you believe? <laughs> I love that anarchic, mm. segmented narrative and this 
made it into a hero's journey, which wasn't what Alice was for me. Yeah. So I did go in with a lot of baggage. Mm. But it, I, I think I think that's easily. I think Alice is easily his worst film. It because it, it feels like fan fiction. It feels like you know it what does, if these characters yeah. hang out together and then in the oh let's say there's a prophecy and then in the end uh, what we need to show that Alice is a strong female character. So let's put her in chain mail and send her into a big battle that came straight out of a Narnia film. Mm. So how does any of this relate to anything from Alice in Wonderland ever? It just, it felt wrong on every possible level. It also me. betrayed its whole idea about, you know, Alice was your outsider. Your Burgundesque outsider character who didn't like the society she was living in when mm. she was trying to be married off. So she wanted to be independent, do her own thing. Goes back to, to Wonderland where she's meant to fulfill another destiny. And in this Wonderland, they're all saying, you know, you can't just do whatever you want to do. You have to fulfill your destiny and work out what that is. And then, yeah, it becomes an, an individual act of killing the dragon. Yes, I had big issues with it. But yeah. I don't think it's the worst Burton film. I, I at least found it good to look at and very beautiful to look at. I think Planet of the Apes is the one that was, is the real clunker for me. That's a close second for me. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's, it, it just smacks of studio job. What was he thinking? Well... That came up in conversation. People were pushing, people were asking yeah. him directly. Somebody, you know, there were a few questions trying to tease out. Are there any films you're disappointed with? And, and he finally yeah. just said, you know, well, okay, Planet of the Apes is the one I get the, the most flack for. But he said, I did it because I wanted, you know, I wanted to do it and I wanted to see apes talk, and that's what it's got in it apes talking. But that's, that's, that's as deep as he got. Thought, exactly. Right, I want, to, right, see, I want to see apes talking and talk- sums up my problem with his films. Yeah. <laughs> And the apes talk very well. He got that bit right. But no, look, there's stuff I like about apes, but overall, it's a pretty flaccid, ordinary studio check-in, check-out kind of job, really. Mm, Do you think it has? he has it in him to go back to that, not specifically Edward and Edward Scissorhands, but to tell a deeply personal story that is that really touches people and, and isn't just the studio hack job that we or some of us are accusing him of mm. making. Does he have it in him? Well, I like to think so. I do think he's genuine and sincere, but he's mellowed. You know, if he never makes another film again, if he, if he never makes another good film again, I'm still going to say I love him as a director. Mm. For Edward, Edward Scissorhands and the Batman films. But um, it's curious. He Somebody asked him about the CGI element of Alice in Wonderland, and he talked about how much he loves working with sets and costumes and having it all real. And he said that he found Alice really exhausting to work with and it was like doing it all in reverse. Now, this is pure speculation on my behalf here. I can't back this up whatsoever, but I got the vibe he was choosing his words carefully and he may not have enjoyed the experience of doing Alice this way. Mm. So I'd be curious to see if he goes back to something more grassroots. Mm. He did say he likes things to have a rough edge. He likes mm. it a bit messy. Even when using technology, he likes to use that funny stop-start animated yeah. feel. So That's kind of the stuff I love about him. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's that charmingly retro kind of... Oh, I think he's the real deal. He just hasn't been as inspired as he was. But his next film is apparently Frank, a feature version of Frankenwing. He's gone back to make his short, yeah, to remake his short mm. film Frankenwing. Now, is that a personal thing or is that something that his fans think he should do? That's that's probably right on the cusp of that. We won't know till we see it. Mm. That's interesting. I feel like the next film is the one that decides which side he's on. <laughs> It's on. <laughs> it's right. Bert on. All right, Burton. You've got one film left to turn it around. Frank and Weenie. Is it personal? Is it for the fans? Well, Mr. Caldwell, thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thanks so much. It's for a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you. Happy film watching. Bye.